Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Designed for Culture. Today, I am joined by Kathleen Bradley from Cubic Maltby, the fabrication company, to talk about the five questions fabricators always hear. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you. For those who don't know you, could you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I work for Cubic Maltby. I'm the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships, and I work with our various partners of design teams, clients, vendors, and subcontractors to bring projects together. Great. So I have a, I have a, I have a surprise question. How did you get into this business? It's always oh, so interesting. Yeah, this it is interesting. I love to ask people this also, because we all come from just such weird, different backgrounds. I came about it a very roundabout way. I actually started college pre-med and okay. after a couple of internships, decided that that just wasn't what I wanted to do and uh, just sort of fell into changing my major into industri to industrial design. Hmm. I thought I was going to design medical equipment because that was a logical crossover after two years of being a biology major. And uh, we had a semester where we did an exhibit design. It wasn't a museum exhibit. It was a trade show and a complete rebranding of a company, but I was hooked and that's what I knew I wanted to do. Uh, I didn't know how to go about doing that, but um, that's my background. And, and actually, after graduating, went to work for Georgia Aquarium on their in-house design build team before the aquarium even existed. So when we were in trailers, um, a hard hat zone across the street. And uh, so that's that was how I got my start. Wow. That's awesome. From from medical school to a hard hat in a trailer <laughs> yeah. at an aquarium. A big shift. All right. Spring and now to the parents. Right. And now now working in fabrication. And how long have you been working in on the fabrication side of the business? Uh, fabrication total about 10 years out of uh, about 20 years in the industry. Not 10 years straight through, but I've I've kind of moved around throughout the industry in different types of roles. How, uh, what do you say when people say, uh, what's a fabricator? Do you, do you get that question? What do you, what do you, how do you answer? How do you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, people always assume if I work in museums, so I must be a curator. So it's first explaining I'm not a curator, right? right. but explaining that we're the people who build the museum exhibits. And they're like, what? Like no one ever thinks about that. You know, they know they get designed and content's developed and there's artifacts, but nobody actually thinks about how they get built. Wow. Yeah. I, I always, at cocktail parties, I, I always feel like uh, people assume that they have to be built, but no one realizes they have to be designed. I think this is just a, <laughs> this is a psychology test for all of us, it a Rorschach, Rorschach blot. All right. Anyway, let's, uh, my personal psychology aside, let's, let's get into your, your questions, this list you came up with. What, what inspired you to come up with this list of the five questions fabricators always hear, and then we'll we'll dive into it. Well, uh, when you when you talked to me about doing a podcast, I thought, well, what are the what are the questions I get asked? How can I help people who are planning to design and build an exhibit um, get ahead of the game? How can I give them mm -hmm. information ahead of time so they can be prepared? Got it. Okay. All right. I'm going to reveal the list. As always, I know what the list is, but I don't know what everything on the list means. So I'm as interested to hear uh, as our visitors are. So here we are. Without further ado, 
the five questions fabricators always hear. Number one, design build versus design bid build. Number two, best value versus low price. Number three, the importance of prototyping or is prototyping important? Uh, Number four, should I have a cost estimator? And number five, uh, cost escalation numbers. What are the latest? So let's just jump right in. First question, design build or design bid build? First of all, what's the difference? Can you give our listeners a crash course in those two methods of delivery? Yeah, absolutely. So design bid build is the most common uh, traditional method for producing museum exhibits. So in this method, you have the design team brought on first. They go through the design process from start to finish with the client. And then that design is put out to bid with fabricators. Um, Fabricators then provide uh, cost estimates and are selected based on a number of factors. And then often there's, um, you know, during the contracting phase, there's some value engineering to hit the, the client's target budget if it's different from the the bid. And then design build, you start out with everybody at the table day one. Um, So not just your designer and fabricator, but if you have a media producer, a media hardware integrator, a lighting designer, they all start out working together from day one. Um, So maybe a benefit of this might be just that cost estimating happens throughout the design phases rather than after the the design is complete. So there's not so much double dipping uh, between the design and fabrication execution. I mean, one thing I've seen clients, uh, or one one, uh, method that clients have used to choose one or the other is is sort of by brute force. Some of our Mm. clients are permitted to go sort of straight and, and uh, have a single contract with a single mm-hmm, entity, usually mm-hmm. a fabricator. And then that fabricator might put together the dream team and they might hire uh, planners or media folks or whoever it might be. And then you kind of get the benefit of an expedited process uh, versus in some situations, clients either cannot, they're forced mm-hmm. not to, or they prefer not to mm-hmm. uh, do it that way. And they want to have that, that sort of design process at arm's length, the formal bidding process, and then they they want to have the the building process, the sort of contractors triangle, as mm-hmm. people in the architecture and engineering world sort of say. Um, what what to 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 clients who are thinking about it that way? How do you advise them which the which one of those that they ought to pick? Like if they're if they have any leeway in being able to do either one, uh, what's the what's the number one reason that you would recommend one or the other? recommend one over the other just based on what their timeline, what their budget looks like. So if they know that time is tight or their budget is tight, design build can help them save time and money. Um, And uh, while you have everybody on the team from day one, there's still a savings because you're not spending, you know, three to six months in a bidding process. Okay. So, so so you can speak, so design. Yeah. If you take design, bid, build, and you take that middle, you snip mm-hmm. that middle thing out, the bid piece of it, you're left yes. with just design, build. Mm-hmm. And that means that you save time because you took an actual piece of the process out. Yeah. So that's number you're one. You're just removing the process. Exactly. Right. And and what what else? Because from from our from our perspective, um, mm-hmm. one of the big reasons is that, um, the, that whether it's architecture or it's exhibit fabrication or whatever, if you have the designers designing the last thing the designers do before they go out and get a bid is create the instructions for uh, creating it. They, they, mm-hmm. How to bake the cake, the, the, mm-hmm. what we would call in the old, old days, the blueprints. 
And then, of course, the first thing that happens is the folks who get hired make their own set of equivalent blueprints in order to say how they will build it, which is specific to their shop and everything like that. So the client has, basically the client is paying for two different entities to do the same thing, one right after the other. And I I assume that's another way that we're telescoping the, or or reducing uh, the, 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 the overall time because we're not doing it twice. Exactly. Yep. You're not doing it twice. And, you know, I've worked on all sides of the business. I've worked in a museum. I've worked at a design firm. I've worked for a fabricator. And at the end of the day, the fabricator is almost always going to change, you know, the nuts and bolts of how things are put together mm-hmm. um, based on what's going to be most effective to for the design intent. Um, but at the, but also, you know, it kind of, it comes down to what the client's comfortable with. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with having everybody at the table. And that's okay, too. Okay. So the big question is, which side do you come down on? If you had a gun to your head, which way are you going to pick every time? I personally am going to pick design build. You're in the design build camp. I'm in the design build camp. There's a however. Okay. (laughs) However, I have teammates who would disagree completely. Um, I have teammates who would love to say, okay, bid's done. The numbers are in. It's approved. Let's get this thing built. And and just, just for our, our dear listener, you are not, Kathleen Bradley is not saying, if you come to me with a design bid build project, see you later. I'm not going to talk to you. You, you are not <laughs> saying that, right? Absolutely not. I mean, okay. I would say, um, you know, 50 to 70% of our work is actually design bid build. And hmm. it comes down again to what clients are comfortable with, what's um, more typical in the industry and what they're even allowed to do based on the way their, their organization is set up. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. That's number one. Now, number two, best value or low price? It's another question that you hear all the time. Best value or low price? Say yes. more about that. So, you know, ideally you're getting the best value and a low price, but so often, you know, we'll see projects come through and it's it's a low bid situation. And again, this often comes down to the way an organization is set up and their rules for bidding. Um, however, we, I do have some recommendations just based on my experience working for a museum, working in a museum as the person selecting the design team and the fabricator of how I would go about tackling the situation. If you, if you are uh, beholden to a low bid, how to make sure you are getting the best value because all fabricators are not created equal. So a low number doesn't necessarily mean you're getting the best product. So I typically recommend, you know, first um, go through a qualifications process Mm. with all the fabricators who are recommended to you by a designer. Again, if you make sure your designer recommends people, they've seen a lot. They've seen a lot of fabricators. They've seen a lot of work. They know who they've they've liked. They know who has who's done a good job for their clients. Send out a qualifications package, review these qualifications and, you know, weed out people who you think aren't going to meet your needs. And next, I recommend going through an interview process. This may sound a little backwards to not get numbers up front, but at the end of the day, it's just as important that you like who you're working with, especially if it's like a year to three-year process going through fabrication, depending on the size of your project, you want to like your team. You want to trust them and you want to know they have your best interests at heart. So before you go through the bid, get to know them. Um, we've been going through a process lately that I think the, um, the museum is doing just such a fantastic job of being thorough 
And I know if we don't get selected, you know, they've selected the people who are best for them because they've interviewed us. They visited our shop and gotten to know our team. And then following that, we submitted our pricing. So it comes down to the personalities as well as the price. You're not just, you know, targeting a low price where you may not get the best product or the best team. So for uh, for our listeners who may not who may who may have not gone through a process mm-hmm. like uh, what you're talking about when you say low bid mm-hmm. you are referring to a procurement process where yes. a client you know a, a museum or somebody who needs to have something built is going to put out a request for a proposal to do the building and when you say low bid that means they're going to take the low bidder that's Correct. their that's their criterion for Correct. selection as opposed and, to best value mm-hmm. which is um also, presumably, they don't want to hire the most expensive bidder, uh, but they're not only going to look at price. Is that fair? Exactly. To say? Okay. And often, you know, it's surprising how often we do see teams just looking for the lowest price. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I can't tell you how many times they've come to us after they've fired that bidder and right. now they have less money and the same project that they need to get done. Um, if they would go through, you know, getting to know the team first, they may be able to avoid some headaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also mentioned the word, uh, another jargon word, just for our listeners, qualifications. Mm-hmm. So uh, that um, that would mean uh, not not a, not a price, but just being given some kind of package of credentials or being having a conversation with someone to understand what past projects have you done? Mm-hmm. How are you qualified to do it? What's your staff like? What are your facilities like? How many projects like this have you done before? How many square feet of manufacturing do you have? What global network do you have? That, that kind of thing, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, just kind of looking behind the scenes to make sure that the fabricator actually has the, the staff, the capabilities, and the experience to build your project. And you also mentioned one thing that caught my ear, which is the idea of uh, doing an interview before you talk price, mm-hmm. which is not customary. That's it is not, not a customary thing. But you sound you sound like you would you wish that people ask for that more often. So uh, that that means it uh, it's really testing the relationship or seeing if there's seeing if there's chemistry or is it is it something else? What what else do you what else do you see the interview achieves for for you and for the person making the purchase? Uh, I think you know it's it's some somewhat a test of personalities. Again, these are often long running projects. And um, there has to be that that connection at some level. I mean, there's so many, you know, government jobs where it's very contractual. But if there is a partnership and, and some relationship there, I think when things do get tough, you know, if, you know, something is out of stock, or there's long lead items, or, you know, inevitably, there are going to be hiccups in the process. I think there's it's easier to collaborate to come to the best solutions together when there's a relationship beyond mm-hmm. the simple transaction of dollars. Right, right. Or I, 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 somebody once said to me, it's stuck in my mind that um, if you're if you're going to make a transaction, you you have to uh, you have to like one another mm-hmm. before you can trust one another. Exactly. And you have to trust one another before you will exchange money with one another. Yes. It's kind of like, trust, buy. And I guess what right. you're saying is spend more time trying to like each other. Right. Because so often it's buy and then you're hoping you like each other 
to right. maybe gain trust. Right. Um, where again, just putting that interview process before the bid can help you eliminate bidders who, while they may come in lower, you just don't like. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's us, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So that's 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 good. So that's number two. So number three is the importance of prototyping or whether you should prototype. Can you say more about what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So um, not just for like, I think about prototyping, you know, with interactives and things that are a little bit more challenging builds. So often we want to jump into just building it and getting it done. But, uh, you know, again, having worked in a museum, having had the pain points of things that have been built without proper prototyping and testing. I always recommend with interactives, which could be digital, which is maybe more of a beta testing phase, making sure your software and hardware are playing well together, or your hands-on mechanical interactives are working really well before you go into the final build. So that means, you know, maybe you're making a rough model, um, maybe you're testing out just different hardware components, but doing this test has, you know, saved a lot of trouble for me in the past. And that's, you know, either ongoing maintenance issues where you, you don't want your exhibits to go down. Visitors do not like when exhibits are down, especially if it's something that's their favorite. But also thinking about just longevity, um, things lasting as long as possible because exhibits are expensive. They're, ex- they're expensive to build. They're expensive to maintain. Um and uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's why your visitors are there. So, so b- before the before the show, we were also mm. talking about trading some war stories, and you were talking about a particular war story where uh, prototyping um, helped one of your clients mm-hmm. not necessarily make sure that something wouldn't break. Although it's it's clear that prototyping and making sure you have the right materials and right assemblies will will prevent undue maintenance later. But this was more about making sure that it actually worked for people. Yeah, and it involved. Yes. Uh, I was a little surprised to hear this. It involved <laughs> electric shocks that were yes, given to did. visitors. Should we? Should we even discuss this project? This is shocking. It is shocking indeed that we are shocking human beings with our exhibits. But it was an interactive exhibit at the International Spy Museum. Oh, okay, and yeah. yeah, that tracks, right? <laughs> okay, I'm I'm with you now. And um, the exhibit was about trust. So it was kind of setting up if you are a spy, like whether or not you were to trust your your handler. And I'm hoping I'm getting this right because this has been a few years ago. Um, But based on, you you have two people doing this interactive, one on each side of a barrier. You were putting your hand on a touchpad and then you were deciding if you trust or betray the other person. And based on your answer and their answer, the Um, interactive delivers a shock to one, both, or neither person. So this is something- Hang on, (laughs) hold on a second. How, uh, when you mean shock, how much of a shock- I don't know the volts, but we did test this uh, because you do have to figure out, and you know, we had to take some volunteers from our staff. uh, You do have to figure out the appropriate level of shock to deliver. So that was part of the prototyping. So this is like shock, like a little like static electricity kind of shock. A little little zap, like rubbing your feet on the carpet. So it's uh, this isn't a disable embedded medical equipment shock. This is not a paperclip in an outlet situation, but more you know, a a very mild. you here, but uh, yeah. So no, what, no, what no. happened That's next? That's a valid question. Do you want to do you want to do this interactive? 
Um, so that was something we actually had to test was, you know, what's the right amount of shock to deliver, but also the delivery method. So as it was designed, um, and even designed by our internal interactives team, you know, we started out with a, just a stainless steel plate that you put your hand on. And at the end of the day, you would think this, you know, a stainless steel rectangle, you put your hand on it, you press the button, you're going to feel a shock. It didn't work. Didn't work at all. It didn't work. Huh. Um, okay. we, we also found different people's hands accepted shock differently. We hmm. think it was like, honestly, how sweaty are your hands? If you're sweatier, you're going to get shocked more. But oh. we went through about five iterations of this touchpad and learned that you actually deliver the shock most effectively with pinpoints on the fingertips instead of a full pad, which hmm. we never would have guessed. But had we not prototyped, you know, this would have gone on the exhibit floor as designed and people would have thought it just didn't work. God, okay. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm filing that, filing that away in my mental filing system. Should I ever in the future mm. need to know how to shock visitors? Yeah, you um, need to shock a visitor. Small will, touch points are the key. Usually, usually we're shocking visitors in another way, but I, I, it's good. It's good to have this information. That's excellent. Yeah. All right. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. I am talking with Kathleen Bradley from Cubic Maltby about the five questions fabricators always hear. So. I think our next point is going to be number four. Question you always hear, should I have a cost estimator? What what do you tell people when they when they ask you that? I could ask you that. Should I have a cost estimator? Yes, you should. You okay. absolutely should have a cost estimator. And, and when and, I and why? What's the what's the rationale? Well, and and I'm talking about not through the bidding process, but during the design process. Um, and this is because so often, and we're seeing it more lately after, you know, in our post-COVID world, mm -hmm. um, you know, projects go out to bid and they're coming in over budget. We're having to value engineer. Things are getting cut. And a lot of those things are really cool. And, you know, we want to go through the process in such a way that as we go from design into fabrication, we're able to maintain the design intent. We don't want to cut things. We want to maintain that overall experience that was originally designed and agreed upon by the by the designer and the client. So, if it just a uh, jargon watch, mm, mm -hmm. a cost estimator. I think that's that goes without saying. But you just said you want to have cost estimation throughout the design process to avoid uh, surprises and value engineering. So, I know what value engineering is, mm -hmm. but could you? Tell our listeners uh, what that euphemism refers to. I What's can. another way of saying value engineering? Oh, so much pain, so much pain. Um, so value engineering is when we go through the design and we make changes to it that either cut items entirely or modify them uh, to get them into budget. Got it. So it's, it's saving money. Ways it's to save saving money. money, but it's right. also really a bummer. <laughs> Right. Well, I always think whenever I hear the phrase, and I, I hear the phrase all the time in, in my end of the business, I always think, you know, value engineer is a euphemism, just like sanitation engineer is mm -hmm. a euphemism. Yeah. There's another mm -hmm. word for that. Um, and the other word is usually sort of budget cutting. Uh, yep. But I guess value engineering as a phrase or as a, as, a, as a term of art or as a euphemism is a little bit more accurate. It goes back to your earlier point about 
best value versus low price, that it's it's not just budget cutting, it's figuring out ways to reduce the price, but keep the value or yeah. reduce the price in a way that doesn't shed all of the value, right? Correct. So maybe Whenever it's a euphemism we should, we should live with. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. Um, what about where you get the cost estimating services? Yeah, a, so you know, a, the, uh, I don't know, firms like the, the one that I run could uh, do that in-house. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you all do that, of course, as well in the process of doing bidding. You could do that as a separate service. You could have an independent cost estimator. Did I leave anything out? Is there another way to no, do that? No, you didn't. Are those um, yeah. the three? Those are the three. Um, Pros and cons for each of those, which... You know, um, you came down in support of design build. So are you going to come down in support of one of these or are you going <laughs> to? I prefer an independent cost estimator. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, it gives the, the client peace of mind. Um, so they they know this person doesn't have a dog in the fight when it comes to the bid. So mm -hmm. I think that's uh, definitely positive. And these cost estimators see a lot of projects. That's what they do all day long. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, many design firms have cost estimators in-house who do fabrication cost estimating. We found that to be fantastic as well when we work with design partners who have done this. It sets their clients up for success. And then often we're asked to come on board, you know, even in a design bid-build bid setting um, during the design um, if it doesn't preclude us from bidding to help provide biddings or estimating services to make sure that as the design progresses, it stays on target with the, um, with the agreed upon budget. So, so just to be clear about that, for anyone who's listening, you, uh, Cubic Malpe, where you work is a fabrication company that will bid on fabricating these major projects, but it's, uh, you will also help uh, clients by essentially packaging your estimating services in advance absolutely separately and that yes. they don't they don't need to have you bid on the project in order to do that is that right that's correct so it's just in the best interest of the project to make sure that we're looking at the estimate from the start we're looking at making sure we don't get through design development and you know we're 30% over and then have to backtrack and fabrication and cut things out and value engineer so people can people can call you up and ask you if you'd be willing to do that. And you just said you would do that if you're if it doesn't preclude you from bidding. In other words, I guess you wouldn't you wouldn't know too much uh, when it comes well, around to the bid time. Yes, often um, if someone has provided cost estimating services, they're not allowed to bid on the fabrication. So in those instances, uh, we would recommend going with an independent cost estimator. And honestly, you know we. we know of a great independent cost estimator who we highly recommend in those cases. Who, uh, well, who, our visitors want to know the answer to that one now. Who would, who do you recommend in those cases? Uh, typically Tom, Tom Guiley. He's worked on a number of projects and uh, does a great job. Okay, great. Um, I, I know uh, that provider as well. We have to spell his name. What's Spell his last name for us. It's G-I-L-L-E. Great. Perfect. Okay. So now we've, we've gotten up to the big number five. Now, number five, I don't know about our listeners, but I'm extremely interested to hear this. Uh, number five is what are the latest cost escalation numbers? And we're recording this mm -hmm. at the very end of February, 2023. Uh, we are post-pandemic by a hair and everybody wants to know 
what is going on with pricing? And I hear you have a spreadsheet. I do have a spreadsheet. Um, back in 2020, we started tracking this. March of 2020, uh, we, we said, okay, we, we know costs are, are shooting up for a number of reasons. Uh, we really We didn't think that it would last this long, but we did start tracking costs. March of every year, we we did do a double check in January um, to make sure that we're on target, and uh, we'll do another check in March. But yeah, we've seen um, what we've done is just tracked our our what we call our commodity goods. So typical sheet goods like MDF and shop grade plywood. These are some of our most common materials used in almost well, I would say probably every exhibit. Same thing with acrylics and plastic sheet goods like Sintra, as well as typical hardware and paints. So those are the things we've been tracking. We haven't been tracking metal fabrication because in our world, um, nothing is production. Everything is a one-off. Everything is a unique structure um, produced specifically for an exhibit. So that's a bit harder to quantify than things like sheet goods where you're ordering the same thing over and over. Right. Got it. Okay. So what we've seen um, overall, you know, we saw an initial escalation in 2021. We continued escalating in 2022. And what we're seeing in 2023 is in some cases for certain materials, we're seeing a de-escalation. Is it a lot? In some cases, as much as 30% de-escalation, but nowhere near the pre-COVID prices. Okay, you can see... Kathleen and I, we can see each other because the way we're recording this, we're only recording the audio, but we can see each other. You can probably see on my face that I'm a little bit stunned. That is the first time live right now that I have heard anyone use the word de-escalation. Uh, that's <laughs> All right. I, now you've really got my attention. Uh, for our listeners, escalation is um, you know a number that's put into construction, fabrication estimates in advance to account for things like inflation, uh, in the future, if the project isn't going to be done for some years in the future, you want to add some kind of a standard percentage each year to uh, be able to predict what the price will be in the future, not what it is now. And that's what we refer to as escalation. Now, de-escalation, I've, in fact, I think I've, I don't think I've ever heard anyone use that word before. I think you're the first human that I've up, heard. You know, I might that, have made it up. <laughs> but I, but I love this word. I'm in love with this word. Tell us more about what you're saying. So I'm just using the word de-escalation um, to say, you know, there are certain items where the cost is dropping closer to pre-pandemic levels. Wow. So uh, to, to what, are, what are those materials? So again, um, you know, looking at, and, you know, things escalated for different reasons. So in some instances, it's supply chain related. In others, it's labor. Some cases, it's both. Um, so what we've seen is, you know, shop grade plywood has reduced in cost since 2022, hmm. um, almost 30%. Given, you know, we're still at 106% of pre-pandemic costs, but it is starting to go down. Um, we don't believe it's ever going to hit pre-pandemic levels. At this ah, point, the cat's out okay. of the bag. And okay. um, if uh, suppliers don't have to reduce costs, they most likely will not. 
So me, but, let's just drill into that for just a minute. So you're mm-hmm. saying uh, like for a sheet of plywood, mm-hmm. for common construction material or fabrication material, if that sheet costs you, let's say $25, uh, an escalation since the day when it costs you $25 back mm-hmm. in 2019 or something to today, if you're, if it's a 100% escalation since then, mm-hmm. that means it does, that's, that's 100% means it's a double. Like yes. You add, that's you correct. add a hundred percent to the $25. That means it's $50 or mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Now, when you said before 30% de-escalation, are you saying that it's starting to come down from that? So it's um, 30% less. In other words, that would be, what is that? $15 uh, off of $50? Or is it, is it, is it 30%? It's come down for something higher yes, down to down being only double higher. in this. Yes. Deal. Okay. That's correct. So to give you actual numbers um, mm-hmm. for say a three quarter sheet of shock grade plywood, a three uh, three three quarter inch thick sheet of, of plywood. three quarter yeah. inch sheet of plywood. This mm-hmm. is one of our most common materials. Back mm-hmm. in March of 2020, this was about fifty dollars, and that's mm-hmm. based on our cost. Um, whatever you see at Home Depot is probably different because we're mm-hmm. we're ordering in bulk. Mm-hmm. 2021 that increased to about sixty. Two dollars. Twenty twenty two increased again to about eighty eighty six dollars. Twenty twenty three it has reduced down to about seventy one. So we're huh. starting to see we've kind of crested the hill, and we're starting to see things drop back down. There are items that are still increasing, certainly still increasing. Um, there are. Yep. What it like what. Um, <laughs> tell so me now still, so that yes, I don't, I'll tell you I now. don't, don't start you, designing with them. I need to know. Unfortunately, it's our most common material, which is um, three-quarter inch MDF, another very common material. Oh, the um, other, yeah, the other sheet mm-hmm, wood. Yeah. Uh-huh. The other sheet wood. Um, this one started out at about $25 in 2020 and has continued to steadily increase. We're at about 106% here at $51. So that one is still on the rise. Um, we're hoping to see that decrease a bit and follow the trends that um, we've seen in plywood, but uh, not yet. Wait what a minute. So I'm, I'm no mathematician mm-hmm. here. So, mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that MDF, uh, a medium density flake board, uh, the stuff that looks like wood, but it's actually made out of tiny mm-hmm. flakes that are reconstituted, very, very common building material, if you don't have to see it later, um, that the price of that now is the same as the price that plywood used to be Mm-hmm. Three years ago. Correct. Meanwhile, plywood has doubled. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, not quite doubled. doubled. You said it went from and 50 and it went up to 80 yeah. something, and then it's now to 70 or something. So that's starting to kind of come back down again. Mm-hmm. However, again, I'm no mathematician, but but 70 some dollars is not $50. It is not. <laughs> and you just said that, like, the cat's out of the bag. It ain't going back to the old way. And mm-hmm. you've got the spreadsheets. What? How, how can you see in the future like that? How do you know it's not going to go back to the old way? Oh, I think it would be, you know, it it made over many, many years, but I think we're still catching up a little. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, pricing, commodity goods pricing is based on supply and demand. If there is demand, there is not a lot of reason for um, those suppliers to reduce costs substantially. And they will, and they will reduce as demand decreases. So, you know, we're probably seeing that a lot of the needs were met where there was pent up demand through 2022. Mm-hmm. And that's where we saw our highest price when all that demand was was finally met um, through the manufacturing process catching up. 
that's when it started to reduce. So unless there's a significant decrease in demand, I don't see it going back to that $50 mark anytime soon. Uh, but we can prepare for that. And that's why it's important that we're tracking these things is that we can prepare, we can prepare our clients and um, you know, make sure that we're not having to do those, those budget cuts as we go through the bid process. We, we don't have uh, music cues in this podcast, but if we did, I'd, I'd have the Godfather theme playing slowly <laughs> in the background in violin as you, as you reveal this truth of our shared future yeah. here live on Making a Museum. Um, but you did mention de-escalation at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, has Kathleen has, has taken away, but she has also given in this uh, vital information and vital hope for the future. Let's see. We, we have been talking about the five questions fabricators always hear. Let's see. Uh, let's do a little recap. Number one, design build versus design bid build. We have some opinions here, but there, there are the two possibilities and you've heard the pros and cons. Number two, best value or low price. Number three, uh, is it important to prototype? Number four, should I have a cost estimator? And number five, what are the latest cost escalation numbers? So those are the five questions fabricators always hear. Um, are there any others, any bonuses? Any secrets? Any any you can think of? No, I mean these were that that last one. You know that's what I was waiting for, and and you uh, pretty much rocked my world with that last one. So, if I think we covered it, so Kathleen, it has been great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I learned a lot. I'm sure our our listeners did as well. So, if folks would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? A website or LinkedIn or email? Yeah. Um, my email address is C Bradley, and that's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y at cubicmaltby.com. And that is cubic with two K's, K-U-B-I-K-M-A-L-T-B-I-E.com. Awesome. And I guess that's also the website where they can find you as well. That is the website where they can find me. Terrific. Okay. That's all for this episode. I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.